Amen. I'd like to share with you one of the most important days of my life. Uh, it was the day that I bought my first HD television. Can I get an amen from anybody? Yeah? None of you? Your wives are sitting there, don't do it. <laughs> so I went to the store, I bought the television, I came home and I put it on our little thing and I sat back, I put my feet up and I thought this is gonna be the beginning of the rest of my life. And so then I, I, I turned the TV on and have you ever tried watching an HD TV with an analog signal? It's like the worst experience ever. Give me an analog TV any day. Remember those big boxes? Like, ugh. All right, so, I sat there and I'm like, this, this isn't working. So I call some friends and I'm like, what's going on? And they, they tell me about this cable that I've never heard of in my entire life. It's called an HDMI cable. So they say, well, do you have your HDMI cable? And I said, what? I've never heard of it. We have to go to the store and buy it. For like, at the time, for like a, a four foot HDMI cable, it was like 40 bucks or something stupid. And so I go to the store and I buy my HDMI cable. I come in, I plug it in, and I'm like, I am ready to go. Put my feet up, nothing. So I finally, I call our cable company. Remember cable back in the day when we all had cable? Um, so I call my cable company. That was a joke. So anyways, I call my cable company and I said, um, there's something wrong with you guys, I don't have HDTV. And they said, well, you don't have a box. I was like, how much is the box? Oh, it's gonna be an extra $20 per month. And I'm like, at this point, I'm really frustrated. I'm like, well, send me the box. I'm already like 600 bucks in, so just bring it, right? So they send me the box, and I get the box a couple days later, I put it in, I set it all up, and I'm ready to go, right? Now here's the deal, it doesn't work. You know why? Call the company. I'm like, why isn't this working? Oh, you didn't sign up for HD service, you just got the box. <laughs> How much is the HD service? That's another $10 per month. And at this point, I am furious and nothing worked. You could have all this technology, you could have the best HD TV on the planet, you could have your HDMI cables, you could have everything you need, but if the source signal isn't working, it doesn't matter what the hardware looks like, it doesn't matter how beautiful it looks on your wall, it is worthless, right? And I'm sitting here and I'm frustrated and I'm aggravated, meanwhile not even realizing that the issue the whole time is the signal, and this is the same stuff in the Christian life. Uh, what you see, this is your hardware, it's the decisions you make, it's the words you say, but if the heart, the signal, the source is not pumping out what it's supposed to pump out, it really doesn't matter. So for us, we have this hyper value, this hyper emphasis on what I do and what I say, but for God apparently, he has a very, very different emphasis. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. One verse, that's the whole verse we're going to be in, and here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the pure in, what is it? Heart for they shall see God. The heart, it's the beginning signal for all of your thoughts, for all of your emotions, all of your desires, all of your decisions, and when the heart is broken, guess what doesn't function? All your hardware, right? You look beautiful on the outside, right? But your heart is pumping out a faulty signal. And so when I speak to um, youth, we talk about four things that the heart, or that are broken inside of a person. And the heart is broken in four ways. Your picker, uh, not that you pick your nose, but the things you pick, that you, what you choose, right? It's why when girls date boys and their picker is broken, they pick really dumb boys or vice versa, or why we pick really dumb decisions or why we pick really foolish things. Our picker is broken, our wanter is broken, the things we want are broken. Why do I want that thing? Why do I want these things that are really bad for me? Our wanter is broken. Uh, we get our picker, our wanter, our feeler is broken. Anybody ever raise a child? 
right? Your feeler is broken, not just your kids, it's you. You ever raise a child and you're like, what's wrong with me? Why am I raging all the time? Because your feeler is broken. At every corner, your heart is broken and it manifests itself in these decisions. Your picker, your wanter, your feeler, your choose. I mean, these are all fundamentally broken inside of us because of sin and this is the reality that we live in. And the heart, it's that beginning source and when that's not functioning, all of those other things that we do and feel and think, they all start to break down. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's set some context. If you're new to church, you're new to the Bible, the beatitude is a Latin word that means blessing, basically. And this, um, these beatitudes, there's eight of them, and they are the opening to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most important, most influential sermon that he has ever given. It's probably the most known, well-known sermon in the entire world. Jesus has three main goals with these beatitudes, these blessings. The first goal is that there's a group of people listening to him. We have his disciples, we have a group of really poor, broken, impoverished people, and we have a group of religious elites, wealthy people who think they're better than everyone else. And first, Jesus is gonna empathize. He's gonna put himself in the shoes of the poor, of the broken, of those who aren't in the religious elite, those who don't quite fit in or look right, etc. The second thing he's gonna do, he's gonna talk about blessing. He wants to bless people. He wants people to leave um, flourishing as human beings. If you will pay attention to the Beatitudes and you were to live them out and think like this, you're gonna flourish as a human being. And thirdly, what he's gonna do is he's gonna have to recalibrate because he's dealing just like we preachers have to deal with now. He has to deal with the same thing, people who don't think accurately according to the word of God. So a good master teacher like Jesus is going to dismantle his audience and he's gonna put them back together and recalibrate them so that they think and they feel and they choose truth, good things, things that bring you life. Now, you may not see this at first, But here's what Jesus is doing. He is actually in this beatitude answering an age-old question. Here's how the Jews would ask the question. How do I get into the kingdom of God? And his answer is, you want to see God, which is where the kingdom finds one of its greatest experiences? You have to be pure in Heart. Now, here's the way that we in America, here's how the way we ask the question. How do I get, what's the word? Saved. You were nervous on that one, weren't you? How do I get saved? That's how we, that's okay. That's how we ask this question. In other words, how do I get to the place when I die where God is? How do I get to be a part of God's kingdom? Or for some of us, how do I at all costs avoid hell? And Jesus' answer landed like a bomb on these people. For you and I, his answer is probably not as significant, but for these people, Jesus, honestly, he had to flip upside down their entire view of how somebody gets to heaven. And so by this time in the first century, um, the Jewish religious leaders were teaching this, that salvation, getting into the kingdom of God, was contingent on you obeying the law, so that it was absolutely works-based salvation. Do you see this in America as well? The answer is absolutely. Um, How do you know you're going to go to heaven? Well, I'm basically a good person. I'm better than that person. And what you find is that when people come up to Jesus, as you start reading the Gospels, they're regularly asking Jesus of some version of the following question. Hey, Jesus, how good do I need to be to get in? Hey, Jesus, how much of the law do I need to keep to get in? And you see that this lie pervaded throughout the entire culture of first century Judaism, and Jesus has to go directly at this. And Jesus answers the question with clarity, with clarity. It is the pure of heart 
who get in, not necessarily those who obey the law. And at this point, if you were of the crowd, the religious elite, you were going to shout out loud and say, what? Are you crazy? I have worked my whole life to keep every jot and tittle of this law so that when I stand before God, I can say, thank God I'm not like that person. And you're telling me that all of a sudden, all of these things that I've devoted my entire life to have little to no bearing on whether or not I get into the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand how frustrating Jesus can be as a teacher for these people? Uh, here's, here's what I love. Any well-studied Jew at this time, here's what they knew. You have to pay attention so you can put yourself in the shoes of the religious people at this time. They knew they could purify their bodies with water and other things. But they knew the heart was the jurisdiction of God. That external things do not have the capacity to cleanse the sin and the guilt of our own heart. So the moment Jesus starts talking about a pure heart, here's what he's telling them. Uh, There is a God experience that you need to have if you want to get in the kingdom. You want to see God. It is not about those who are pure in behavior. Uh, There is a reality. There's an experience that you have to have with God where he personally cleanses you and purifies your heart. I mean, this was very frustrating. All of a sudden, right, you have all of these people who thought they have no chance of getting in. They were oppressed by the Jewish teachers, by the oppression of the Jewish teachers. And for the first time, here's what they believed. I have a chance. I have a chance. Because the teachers were holding this teaching over their, their lives that made them feel like it was impossible. They were using them and they were extorting them. And here's what he basically says. The thing you need the most you can never do by yourself. You need something from God if you're gonna get in. So what does purity mean? I mean, technically purity means undiluted, undefiled, not mixed with anything, and that's the technical term for it. But theologically, you have to understand this, theologically, for a Jew to have their heart purified, this was under the jurisdiction of God. They could purify their hearts in one degree, but the purification that Jesus is saying is different. So open up your notes. Uh, you can take notes also on your app. Point number one, we're gonna look at empathize. God sees your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. First, this is rebuke. First, this is rebuke. This is rebuke to the Jewish leaders and their teaching. Now, when we teach on this, right, um, uh, I've listened to a handful of sermons this week to confirm whether or not my suspicion was true, and it is. When we teach on this, we have a tendency as Americans to emphasize the following. Blessed are the pure, right? So the preacher gets up and he says, I want to talk to you about sexual immorality. I want to talk to you about pornography. I want to talk to you about all this stuff, which by the way, is that a great application of being pure in heart? The answer is Yes, that's a good application. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But here, I believe, is what Jesus' emphasis is. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, right? And and so in America, right, Jesus would probably get up and say, hey, you all know you find the heart part of it. Let me just talk about the purity in your personal holiness, and let's talk about that for a moment. But here, Jesus is addressing the fact that they have fundamentally missed what is most important to God, And at this point, when as soon as the Jews hear this, they're gonna say, I'm sorry, blessed are the what? The pure in, excuse me, heart? 
excuse me, um, no, uh, blessed are those who obey the law, uh, blessed are those who go to temple, blessed are those who play by all the rules, blessed are those. And now you're gonna tell me that um, getting into the kingdom of God and seeing God is not about what I do, it is about an experience of purification that happens to me by God? Um, no, no, because if that's the truth, that means that anybody can get in. If that's the truth, that means, that means that those people, the poor people, the broke people, the sick people, the people who don't fit in, like we're on the same playing ground here. Like I put a lot of weight in stock into the fact that my good works, when I stand before you, you were gonna tell me that we're gonna be Okay, now if they would have remembered their Bible, they would have remembered 1 Samuel 16, 7. Remember this about David? The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but what does the Lord look on? The heart. Or if they would have remembered 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord, they run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose what? Heart is blameless towards them. There's something more important to God than your externals, and that is your heart. Now, does God care what you do with your life? The answer is yes. Does he care what you do with your decisions and your words? Yes, but what is most important? It's your heart. Second, this beatitude is liberation. It's liberation. This is an incredibly freeing moment for those who are under the errant and oppressive teaching of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 4, Jesus calls them what they are. In fact, all of Matthew 23 is this loaded, uh, verbally, almost feels violent in a sense, from Jesus to the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's one of the thickest rebukes in Scripture. I would have put the whole chapter, but it's really long. Uh, go read Matthew 23 if you want to get a very different vision of Jesus than what you see in pop culture, like well, caricatures. But in Matthew 23, 4, he says this about them. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. If you were under the leadership of the Pharisees, here's what it might feel like. Do this, do that. Give me money and I will cleanse you with a sacrifice. Not enough, not enough, not enough. Meanwhile, they sit back. Do not pay any attention to their hearts and don't even follow the very laws that they say they're passionate about. Jesus, in this moment, is empathizing with every person who has lived under their errant teaching. And he says this, you wanna know who's gonna see God? Those who are pure in heart. And I want you to, I want you to contrast this, right? We have Matthew 23, four, this is, this is a statement on the oppression of their teaching and leadership. And I want you to contrast with, the, with what Jesus says about living under his yoke or his teaching. Here's what he says. Come to me, all, who labor and are heavy laden. You have a burden on your shoulders, you have a yoke on your shoulders, a teaching from someone else that is oppressing you that you cannot, you cannot succeed, and I will give you rest. Can you, can you see, if you're under the Pharisees' teaching, how freeing and liberating Jesus' message is? Take my yoke, my burden. This is a word that the Jewish rabbis would use for their teaching. Take my teaching, take my law, take my yoke on your shoulders. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now here's the deal. Uh, if you were to follow all of Jesus' commands. Is this humanly possible? What's the answer? 
No. Like, and, and if salvation was about obeying Jesus' commands, would any of us get in? The answer is no, but there's something different in how Jesus applies this to us. Here's what I think Jesus would say. Your external deeds only matter if your heart is first cleansed by God through faith. Here's the deal. I will purify your heart and forgive you from sin and guilt and iniquity. And then from the place of a new heart, you can live in obedience to me. But hear me, you're gonna fail and you're gonna struggle. My yoke is easy because as you fail, I am not here to, to, carry, to enforce a heavy burden on you. He says, I am gentle, which means he comes alongside of you and picks you up and this cleansing is all past, present, and future sins. And so when you follow Jesus, there is a, an objective cleansing and purifying of freedom from guilt, of forgiveness that, that now defines your entire life. And now as you follow Jesus and fail, he is with you. It's very different. It's a very different approach to law. It's very different. It's very beautiful. It's very personal. It's very liberating. And the Jews constantly held it over their head. You failed, pay us money. You failed, you need a sacrifice. Not enough, not good enough, not good enough. And Jesus is like, I was good enough for you. I paid the price, I cleansed you from your sin. Now, stand up, follow me. And when you fail, I will not just put more burden on you, I will take that burden on myself. When you fail, stand up. It was a very different level of leadership. And the people of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus, were very, very, very different in how they related to God because they saw something so beautiful in Jesus. Number two, bless, you will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So seeing God to the Jews likely created two reactions in them, and the first is shock. To the Jews, this would have been uh, kind of an astounding statement. And so they might have said something like, um, hey, Jesus, wait a minute. Um, nobody can see God and live. This is blasphemy. Um, don't you remember Exodus 33:20, where God says to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Remember that? So um, Jesus, you're telling us that like we can see God. This is inane. This is nonsense. The second thing that would probably um, uh, reaction would be confusion. And, and here's what I mean by that. So for most of the Jews, uh, their emphasis was not on, we'll say, intimacy with God, a relationship with God, nearness with God. Their focus, and understandably, by the way, this is understandable because of the nature of the covenant they were under, their focus was on the transcendence of God, the bigness of God, the awe of God, the unapproachability of God. And it's not necessarily bad, but when Jesus came, Jesus is bringing in a new covenant, a new relationship, new boundaries with which we relate to God. And so Jesus is going to bridge the transcendent and the imminent. God is not just huge and big and awesome and powerful and awe-inspiring and amazingly awesome in every level, right? He is also personal and imminent and near and with us, even to the point where the promise of the new covenant is that God now dwells where? In our hearts, inside of us. I mean, talk about nearness. This is a profound reality that is very, very hard for them to get their head around. And so here's what happens. One of Jesus' most beautiful things that he's doing right now is he is taking our relationship with God, the Jews' relationship with God, and saying, you've, you've primarily seen him as transcendent, out there, distant, unapproachable. But let me tell you this. There's a new covenant. There's a new reality. And now you will be near God. Remember how Moses was a friend of God? You remember that relationship? It's gonna be more like that and less like the high priest who has to go into the temple once a year with great, great hesitation. Great hesitation. 
Um, I, I want to draw, I think some of you will understand this better, but um, something happens, and this happened in Judaism, it's happened in Christianity, and there's a huge warning um, that we have, to, we have to pay very careful attention to. And the warning is what happens when faith institutionalizes, um, when faith gets hyper, uh, hierarchical and organized. Now, that's not necessarily bad, but there are some tendencies, and we saw this happen with the Jews, and now we have seen this happen with uh, much of the American church and the global church. This is a human tendency, okay? And so, very simply, here's what happens. Um, when we institutionalize faith, uh, when religion gets a hold of Christianity, there's an unfortunate progression, and, and so for the Jews, substitute the word sacrament for law, okay? Um, our relationship with God, it gets hyper-formalized, very formalized. Uh, and, and we're going to see in a minute why this is increasingly concerning for a new covenant people. Now, is formalized bad? The answer is no. We're very formalized right here, are we not? To a degree. I mean, it's organized. We have a liturgy, if you will. We have an order of service. We have corporate worship. We have prayers that we pray together. Organization is not bad, but here's what you need to know, that oftentimes when you implement hierarchical organizational structure, we as humans, because of our sin inside of us, have some errors that we tend to go toward. Number two, we begin to focus on sacrament or rite or uh, ceremony over intimacy and nearness. And you see this practically. Let me just show you, right? You come here. You don't pay attention to God all week. You don't open your word. You pray to God only when you're desperate. And you believe that you and God are okay because you pray to prayer and because that you come to church once a week. And this is your primary point. You believe that because you do this, this thing, this thing you do, that you and God are, are fine. And then we start to confuse sacrament with intimacy. We start to confuse right or ritual or law. That now if I do the thing, I am now near to God. As if all that matters is the external, right? Can you do the external and have the internal be very far off? The answer is, yeah, you can, right? You worship, you do the external, you do the ritual, you do the right, you do the sacrament, you do the thing, right? And then your heart is somewhere else in la-la land, correct? You understand intuitively how this works. This isn't just organized religion, by the way. This isn't just large denominations or the historical Christian church or Jews. This is you and it's me and it's everywhere and it's something we have to watch out for and ultimately it culminates like this. My relationship with God equals sacraments, equals rite, equals ritual, equals law, that there is not intimacy and nearness that Jesus came to show us. He didn't just come to eradicate law, cleanse us from sin, show us how to live. Jesus showed us how sons and daughters relate personally to God. This is where Jesus shattered their world, okay? So in their brain, they approach God with hesitance. Jesus prays to God. He doesn't just call him father. He calls him one of the most intimate terms you can use. He calls him daddy, and he calls him publicly daddy. Like, this is shattering. And they're like, who are you to speak to the transcendent, awe-inspiring, magnificent, glorious God of the universe who spoke and matter existed like that with such flippancy. Well, Jesus is doing something. He's shattering their old ideas, and he's coming to bring us an incredible blessing. If you will come to me, God will no longer simply be imminent and fearful and dreaded. He'll be in you, and you will see him, and you will experience him. It will go from corporate to individual. It's not just individual, but that is, a nuance, that is a beautiful nuance of the new covenant, where God doesn't just dwell by his Holy Spirit in the midst of his people, but in each individual 
person. I want to illustrate this difference in scripture for you and, and help you understand how drastic this is. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter five. You guys have probably heard this verse or the song uh, after this. It starts off and says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Did any of you um, guard your steps before you walked in the house of God? Did you walk like with slowness and hesitance? Like you were afraid? Probably not. In fact, you probably walked in, ate some food, drank some coffee, hung out with people, went to the bath. I mean, you wanna talk about the opposite, like we're doing something very different than this right now. Let's be, let's be candid, okay? Um, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So let me ask you a question. When you pray, are you hesitant to speak to God? Or do you find yourself pouring out your thoughts and your emotions and your fears and your happiness and your sadness to him, right? Well, apparently there's something different before Jesus under the old covenant. There's a different kind of way that people related to God. Then he says this, God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. This is why we will not sing the song, let your words be few in church because it fundamentally misunderstands one of the greatest blessings of the new covenant is that I have the privilege to speak to God with candor and boldness and to lay my soul before him just like I want my daughters and my son to do personally before me. Here, here's what is happening in Ecclesiastes. When you come to God, shut your mouth. Do you realize who you're talking to? Now, let's watch what happens under the new covenant in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, 16. No longer do you walk in with trepidation and hesitance. He says, let us then with what? Confidence. Draw near to the what? Throne of grace. Functionally, the holy of holies, the very place where God himself dwells. You run in that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you see the difference between the covenants? One is, oh my gosh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Uh, walk with trepidation. And the other is, you are a son or daughter. Hear me, does this negate awe? The answer is no. Does this negate fear? Talk to my son, he's afraid of me. But does he love me and respect me? Yes. Does this negate respect when you relate God primarily as a dad and not a transcendent judge? Trust me, if you had a good dad or you are a good dad, you understand this intuitively because your son loves you and is free to run to you but respects you. If you're a semi-decent dad and your son is little, your son is in awe of you, does this negate his transcendence? Not at all. Here's what it does. It gives us the right relational context to be in awe of our transcendent judge because before he is those things relationally, he's our dad. And that is how the new covenant people first and foremost connect and relate to God. So when you go and you pray and you go before the Lord and you are like, God, you talk to him in the way individually you would want your kid to come to you. Sometimes your kid might write you a letter and that's fine. Sometimes there are different ways that dads and kids, but here's the deal. That this is the primary way that Jesus has showed us how to relate to God. Seeing God, experiencing God, is a new covenant promise. And this promise is given to us now in part, and in the kingdom, or the new heaven and the new earth, or in eternity, it will be ours in full. We will walk with God in the cool of the day as Adam and Eve did in the garden. We will be able to talk with him, and yet he will never for one ounce lose our awe. He will always have our fear, our respect, and our admiration. You will see God now in part, but you will see him later in full. First John 3, 2, you can write this down in your notes. It's a beautiful verse. Beloved, we are God's children now. I want you to hear the emphasis on children. All of the disciples have a hyper-focus 
on adoption and us being sons and daughters. Why? Because they understand something that is missing in most pulpits, that the primary way we connect with God is as kids, as children, as adopted, as in the family, as beloved, right? That's huge. That is a huge focus that we just gloss over. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Transcendence and imminence bound up in Jesus Christ. And one day we will get to see him. I believe this was just shattering for the Jewish people at the time. And their brain, this level of nearness is borderline unthinkable. Number three in your notes, recalibrate. Don't lose heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, the first thing he has to do is recalibrate the Jews. He has to recalibrate especially the Pharisees, the religious elites, but then everybody because they've been functionally taught wrong doctrine about the kingdom and salvation. And so Matthew 23, um, verse, one, uh, verse 5, I want to read this to you. Uh, it's not on the, on the screen, but I just want you to listen. Jesus says this. This is in that Matthew 23 chapter where he, where he rebukes them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Is that, is that a problem, by the way? Everybody look at me, like giving a lot of money and praying a lot. Yeah, that was whatever. I don't know how they didn't make the connection, but they didn't. For they make their phylacteries, it's a religious experience, part of their clothing, that uh, they make them broad and their fringes long. It was kind of a way of bragging and saying, look how awesome my, my phylacteries are long and my fringes are long. Anyways, whatever. Um, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. I love walking around, call me rabbi, call me rabbi. I had a pastor once, and uh, I called him Pastor So-and-so, and he said, it's doctor. And I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever. I'm gonna be straight, though. If I was a doctor, I would tell you the same thing. <laughs> so I called him doctor, because it was pretty awesome. <laughs> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, whoa, Jesus, slow down, man. You are like whitewashed tombs. So they would have these tombs, right? What's on the inside of a tomb? Dead bodies. Oh, let's make it all beautiful on the outside. I'm sorry, but that doesn't cover up what's going on on the inside. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Would you be upset with me if I said that to any of you, by the way? I mean, that's, <laughs> you can understand why they did not particularly enjoy Jesus. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The great, the great irony is that the very thing that Jesus is offering to all of the broken, the poor, he's offering to them as well. If you would come to me and allow me to purify your heart, you can see God too. You might have been a religious hypocrite, a fundamentalist. You might have been um, full of all deadness on the inside, but just focused on the outward over and over again. I love this. Whether you are a Pharisee, a Sadducee, whether you're broken, poor, doesn't matter. Jesus offers the same thing to everybody. Their heart condition is the same as yours, and the only way you'll ever be made right with God is if you're purified through faith. I think in America, we need quite a bit of recalibration as well. Wouldn't you agree? There's an, there's an overcompensation, and I'm guilty of this in American preaching. It goes something like this. Um, all that matters is the heart. Is that all that matters? No, but it is what matters most. So th there are two discussions on the heart that we need to have. One discussion with Christians 
and one discussion with non-Christians. And uh, let's, let's start with non-Christians. Your ability to know God personally, experience God, to go to heaven, to have a relationship with God where there's a give and take in your prayers, he hears you and responds to you, and your ability to call yourself a child of God is contingent not on you reforming your behavior. Your behavior is meaningless before God. It has no bearing whatsoever in any way on your relationship with God, zero. The only thing that you need right now is to make right the broken relationship which happens through trusting in Jesus Christ. You need to have your heart cleansed, purified, forgiven from sins through faith in Jesus. That is it. That is, that is the most important thing. So I can look at a non-Christian and say, the only thing that matters for you right now is your heart. That's it. Uh, and, and so I, w- I would submit to you, uh, many people, uh, you grew up in America and you hear this, God loves everybody the same in exactly the same way, that um, God um, should hear my prayers because everybody goes to heaven and I'm good, and at least I'm better than that person who's better than that person. I mean, the lowest standard is the worst person on the planet, so I'm better than them, right? And yet when you open up scriptures and you hear the teaching of Jesus, he's like, no, you, you need purification. You need to be purified. You need your heart to be cleansed by God, that is his jurisdiction and your external works have no bearing on that whatsoever. And so Jesus offers to you freedom. Freedom from your sin, freedom from your guilt. He offers you not just heaven, but himself and intimacy and nearness and the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And when Jesus comes back at the end, he offers you victory. He offers you a new heaven and a new earth where you reign and rule with him and sin is eradicated from the planet and from your body and your heart and your soul. He offers you everything, and yet here's the one thing that stands between every single person on the planet and that, and that is coming to Jesus by faith and asking him to purify your heart because of your guilt. That's it. That's all that stands between the non-Christian and all the benefits, the blessings, the beatitudes that Jesus offers. This one, seeing God. For the Christian, your heart has already been purified through faith. And so the New Testament is gonna speak to you and it will use this phrase, purify your hearts. This does not mean you somehow, right, go back and cleanse yourself from your own sin and guilt, right? Because who's the only person that can cleanse you from sin and guilt? That is Jesus. What this means for you, actually now, this is where we get to some of the great applications, is when there is a double-mindedness in your life and a hypocrisy, even though you might objectively be forgiven by God through faith in Jesus Christ, when there is a lack of purity in your heart, when you are deluded, when there is more filtering that needs to happen, here's the deal, right? You need to address that and deal with that real time. But for you, the most important part of your life has fundamentally been dealt with, that is your purification and cleansing, and now it is our job to continue to purify. But this is very different than what Jesus does. This is very different. This might be applied in the context of vigilantly protect your heart for from it come the wellsprings of life. This is about protecting your heart. This is about getting rid of things that threaten your relationship with God right now. Let me give you an analogy. Um, If you're married, this is supposed to be a permanent covenant. It's supposed to be one that does not end. And so you and your wife or your husband, you're in this relationship, you're in this covenant, and here's what happens. You start to become a doofus, right? You start to do dumb things. You start to do things that harm the relationship. Impurity in your own heart starts to affect the quality of relationship. But is the legal aspect of relationship changed because you act dumb? The answer is 
No, you're legally still married, but relationally there's a negative impact, right? You're raised by your mom and your dad and they're supposed to love you and stick with you forever. My mom would always say to me, I don't care how dumb you are, if you do X, Y, and Z, I will always love you. Even though I can negatively affect my relationship with her, the legal standing is secure. I am her legal son. That is official, that is unchangeable, right? And so here's what happens, that there's two aspects of seeing God. There's the here and now, and there's the forever. If you want to see God forever, you need purification of your heart through faith in Jesus Christ. But if you want to experience God now and know him more intimately and grow in this relationship, the duplicity, the double-mindedness in our hearts, we need to get rid of them because they are what stands now between us and experiencing knowing, being in intimate relationship with God. Now we say, God, use me. And he's like, I, I can't. I mean, you're purified objectively, legally. You're my child, but your heart is deluded and I can't use you because of where your heart is at. And this is this, is this moment where you might, be, you might be tempted to not be nuanced enough, but here's where I think Jesus would say that there is in, the, in part the opportunity for you to know and to experience God and what stands between us and that is willful sin. And God says, get it out of your life. When you get it out of your life, our experience of our relationship can grow dynamically. So two simple questions to close. Do I want to see God? Your heart must be pure through faith in Jesus Christ. You need God to purify your heart, to cleanse you from guilt, and this does not happen by being good. That was the error of the Pharisees. It happens through faith alone. This is one of, by the way, the most freeing messages on the the planet. Do you know how many people, if you ask them this question, how do you know if you're gonna go to heaven or not, they will give this answer, if my good works outweigh my bad works? Can you imagine the oppression? Could you imagine going home to your mom and your dad and saying, how do you know if your mom or dad will love you today if my good works today outweighed my bad works? That's just an oppressive relationship. It makes God into a moral monster, honestly. It's not consistent with what we see in scripture. This is one of the most liberating and freeing messages. Blessed are those who are pure in heart because God purifies them because you're gonna see God. If you wanna see God now, pursue holiness. There could be a temptation to only preach, be purified through faith in Christ. But I'm telling you, the majority of people, you are HD televisions and you even have an HD signal, but you don't have an HDMI cable, right? The signal is there, the hardware is there, but you don't have the wiring between the two because of willful sin, and that is unnecessary. Go to the store, pay the 30 bucks, buy the HDMI cable, put it in, sit back and relax and watch the source pump through purity out of your awesome HD TV. Is my heart pure? Uh, I, I think this is a great, there's a great way to like kind of just help you take a, a little snapshot of your heart right now, okay? Um, we're in church, so would you like your heart to be pure? The answer is, I think I would like it to be pure, so we're gonna talk to Christians for a moment. This is a, right now, this is a great barometer, what you're doing right now, what you're experiencing. What is your attitude this morning? What's your attitude this morning? Think about it. Critical, um, encouraged, encouraging, humble, defensive, I disagree with that, I disagree with that, I don't like him, I don't like the clothes he's wearing. The band is to this, to that. So this morning, let's be straight, right? All the band, I can speak for them, I haven't asked them, but I saw them in a room. They all put nice clothes on from their standards. I put nice clothes on that I thought, I, I'm like, I like it. I put my best foot forward. I prepared this sermon. I put together a presentation to help you guys. Like I, I want to be prepared. I want to put my best foot forward, right? How many of you put your best foot forward this morning? Anybody? Some of you, the rest of you, that's fine, right? God sees your heart. That's cool. And the good news is that God is looking past all of our externals, all of them. 
And he's like, okay, Michael, you like your shoes this morning. Adorable, great. What's in your heart? If you know me, I love shoes. It's an issue. Uh, <laughs> but he's, he looks and he says, Michael, you got to get up and preach my word. This is sacred. This is a moment where um, uh, you stand on the shoulders of thousands of preachers over 2,000 years plus who have opened up the word and encouraged people. This is a moment where I have put into the rhythm of corporate worship and in, in, in the church life to encourage people, transform them, equip them. This is, I mean, this is really important. The worship leaders, you know, there, I mean, it goes all the way back to David and beyond. The privilege to lead God's people and worship to bring them to a place where we exalt our God. I mean, these are, these are sacred, sacred moments. God looks past all of that this morning. And he doesn't care how awesome your melody and your pitch is. He doesn't, I, honestly, I think he's less concerned than maybe we are on the tech side of how everything works in and out. He's like, where's your heart today? Are you so busy in the pro presenter and in the audio and the visual and the guitar that you forgot this is about exalting and lifting high the name of Jesus Christ, right? Do you see how quickly the demands of life and even organizing worship, even just walking into this room, can reveal where your heart is at? I mean, I like to say we come here for two purposes, to exalt Jesus Christ and to edify each other. That's it, that's why we walk in these doors. I wanna lift up Jesus, I wanna encourage you. That's my goal. You do the same thing, that's why we walk in here. And yet our heart keeps catching up to us. I, I heard uh, a preacher uh, in the last couple weeks and he said, you know, uh, everybody has an opinion on the preacher, right? Uh, he's this, he's that, we like him, we don't like him. Right? Everybody's got an opinion on him. And if for some reason the sermon isn't interesting, it's the preacher's fault, it's his job to keep us uh, enraptured and entertained for um, 40, 45 minutes or 20, whatever it is, the preacher's job, the, the onus, the burden, it's on me uh, to entertain you, the musicians, they get up and it's their job. It's their job to keep you interested, uh, it's their job to make sure the songs ebb and flow, uh, crescendo and decrescendo, at the right moments so that you have an experience, the burden is on us. And then the guy asked this question, it was, really, it was a really insightful question, he said, has it ever considered, has it ever dawned on you that preachers have an opinion of you? Has it ever dawned on you that worship leaders and musicians have an opinion on you? It was really actually interesting, right? Because what you see on both ends, okay, is that uh, our hearts in this moment are laid before us. So he said, and I can't disagree, there are some people when I preach I don't look at because they're always upset, they don't like me, and so I just avoid them. And I'm like, that's really sad that your heart is where it is, right? And there's some people who are really responsive. You know who I look at? I look at them often, right? I'm like, yeah, some people think I look, like, I'll make a hard point and then I'll look at them and they think I'm actually like, making a point to them. And I'm like, that doesn't ever happen, I promise you. In fact, I'm usually looking in the opposite direction when I make hard points of somebody that I know it applies to, just to be really clear. Um, so if you're over here and I'm like, yeah, now you know why I'm looking over there, that's how you know if I'm talking to you, right? My goodness. <laughs> Uh, but it's interesting because uh, even in the worship service, um, we come in and our hearts are revealed in how we worship and how we listen. Entertain me, preacher man. Uh, keep me engaged, worship leader. Make the sound perfect to my preferences, AV guy. Right? Make sure my children have an impeccable program that competes with everybody else, next gen guy. And it's interesting because uh, it reveals in our hearts an issue. And then let, let's be straight, right? So I get up and I preach, and I see the person who's just a curmudgeon looking at me, like, rah, 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 rah. And I'm like, what's wrong with your heart, man? And God's like, bro, that's not your job. <laughs> His heart isn't your job. That is my job. You do your job. You keep your focus, exalt Jesus, edify the people, man. And it's interesting because even as we approach this experience, 
It gets pretty dysfunctional and crazy in American church. I can't speak for what it was like in a Jewish synagogue, but I don't think that the level of demand for Jesus to entertain was as high. And it's interesting because when I think about our hearts in worship, this is kind of the place where I'd like to just draw our attention to because we're gonna celebrate communion in a minute. We're gonna worship, we're gonna a couple more songs. There'll be like another hour and a half of singing. It's gonna be amazing. I have things to do, right? We're fine. Here's my encouragement to you. When you write a song, you worship to it differently because it flowed from you. When you write a sermon, you're invested in it. You're engaged in it, right? So here's, here's my encouragement to you. Worship as if you wrote the song. Listen to a sermon, despite the preacher, as if you labored for hours over it in prayer to edify the people. Pray, when we pray together, pray as if God actually hears what we're saying and is moving heaven and earth to respond. When somebody gets up front and they pray, listen, listen, as if what they said was going to be real and God was gonna move in behalf of their words. Serve, build, edify. Edify as if God is going to use his spirit to encourage or transform or change the person that you serve or speak to. What if? It would change this whole experience, right? I wouldn't be as frustrated at myself for making a mistake because then I wouldn't enable the judgmental person to say, well, I don't have to listen to him because he's too young, he's too this, he's too that. You, the musicians, they wouldn't have to be so concerned about all the AV stuff, although they would be because they're perfectionists and I appreciate that about them, right? But when a mistake is made, they wouldn't have to be hyper-concerned that, oh no, this new person is gonna say they don't have the quality of this church or that church, they didn't entertain me like I wanted to. I mean, imagine the pressure, the load that gets taken off in this community. Imagine the attentiveness. Imagine what God could do with our hearts if we came in here with way less demands and a desire to exalt Jesus from our heart and to build each other up, to have these things flow from a heart that loves and profound. Amazing, I think it could be absolutely astounding. And so what I like to tell people is I love, I love preaching. I don't even mind every once in a while the curmudgeon face, it doesn't bother me at all, it really doesn't. But, um, but when, I, when I sit and Matt and Alex preach, I just listened. I listened as if I labored over it myself. And I loved it. And I could have been, because these are young guys and young preachers. I mean, you think I'm young, they're younger, by like a decade or so, right? And I could have been, but this, but this, but this, and you could have done better on this. And sometimes we have those discussions and those are valuable, right? But even when I'm sitting as a pastor, I am first a worshiper. I'm first an edifier before I'm a critic. And I really do believe that this recalibration in the American experience is gonna happen on our critical, judgmental, demanding hearts. Man, I think this could be an even more beautiful community if we came and we focus on our hearts, first and foremost, in this worship service. Amen, Village Church? Amen.